another episode Behind the Vinyl with Darren and Nicholas. Alrighty, guys, um, another Behind the Vinyl uh, episode. This one's pretty cool. This is uh, Josh Rand um, from Stone Sour. Um, uh, six records in. We're going to talk about their second record uh, come whatever May. Um, great record. Probably got their biggest hit um, through glass on it. Yeah, and I think yeah, I think it's their their uh, biggest selling record uh, so far as well. B- biggest selling record so far. I, I'm a big fan of uh, House of Golden Bones. I think that volume yeah. one, I think just a monster, and Hydroglide, their their latest record. Uh, Josh is a great guy. Josh is um, probably the biggest, one of the biggest record collectors outside of uh, Michael Ackerfeld from my pet um, <laughs> I've, I've ever met. We tend to swap vinyls. Um, he sends over. He's a massive Motley Crue and massive um, Metallica fan. Yes, and we we talk a bit about Metallica and we talk a bit about Motley Crue as well in this in this great chat as well. And uh, Josh uh, tells us a bit uh, about some stuff that he's working on at the moment, um, yeah. which uh, we're really looking forward to. Uh, so uh, there's some there's some cool bits and pieces uh, in this uh, in this uh, episode that uh, that you all like, especially if you're into Stone Sour and so on. Absolutely, um, cool. So we are going to let you guys listen to it and enjoy. Um, and Nick and I will talk to you next next time. Hope you enjoy the show. Josh Rand from Stone Sour. Alrighty, guys, we're here with uh, another episode of Behind the Vinyl. Nicholas is here. We're, we're all yes. on lockdown. Um, and all the way from um, Iowa, we, we have Josh Rand. Going on. Hey, Josh. How are you, man? Josh, of course, from Stone Sour. Welcome aboard. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing your time. Um, Nicholas, have you seen his hat? Well, I've, I, I see the hat, but it's all black. Oh, no, I see. That's cool. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Sporting, sporting the, uh, the Metallica hat. Of course. That's, <laughs> that's something Josh and I talk. Uh, we've talked a lot about that Metallica in the past to two big fans. Um, so uh, have you seen them lately? Um, when was the last show? Right. I don't know. I've seen them so many times. I can't even keep it straight. I mean, I, I think the last show was Kansas City sometime last year is when I've, I've seen them. I've caught them multiple times on this last cycle, three-year cycle. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, went to the, uh, you went to the Cliff Burton Memorial site. I, I remember we talked about that. And uh, the latest news around that is that they're they're going to try to have like a, a bit of a museum around there. Um, there's going to be like a, a bus stop that is actually going to be called uh, the Cliff Burton Memorial Stone or something where the buses will stop and all that. So there's a lot of stuff happening around that site now. Wow, that's cool. So <clears throat> I guess my question is, is because I know that the memorial uh is actually not where the crash site originally occurred. So are they planning on moving that or are they just going to set, or are they going to build on to what is already in existence? 
I think they're going to build on to what is already in existence because I think the reason for it not being exactly where it happened, I think that was, you know, I believe it was someone others, you know, someone owned that piece of land or whatever it was. But it, I mean, it's close by to to where it happened. So I, I've I've been there myself a couple of years ago as well, and and they're just uh, they're just gathering up uh, a lot of stuff from fans, memories from that tour, and so on. And there's going to have as I understand it, some kind of, I don't know, some kind of room or something where people can just look at pictures and hear, read stories and things like that. So it's a really, really cool thing. It's a cool thing that it's still there and uh, that they're they're keeping it alive. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Um, behind the vinyl, of course, we're going to dig into a record. Um, we've actually... Um, I think we threw it over to you, and you choose uh, "Come Whatever May." Um, Stone Sour's second record, right? Well, that's if I have to dis- discuss one of our records. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I I chose that record just because. Um, to me, it, it's I don't want to say it necessarily it's my favorite. I just think that was kind of the really the coming out party. For us in the band and it was just a really special time not only making the record but what would follow as far as the success with through glass and just everything kind of really stepping out of the shadows of slipknot you know um and it really started obviously with that record that record was a massive record for us i think i think that that was the record um <clears throat> as, as a fan the, the first record was kind of a great record, but still everyone saw it as like Corey and, and, uh, and Jim unmasked, um, kind of thing. This was the more one that it stood on itself, especially with these, uh, you know, with these songs and, and opening up with uh 30, 30, 150 as well. It's such a great song and a great powerful song to open up the record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I th- with the first record and I'm not knocking it at all. It is, it felt right at the time and it was exciting, but, um, we were, we were green making that record and we kind of just went in and made this, uh, crazy record ourselves. I mean, we only spent like a month and we recorded it in Iowa. It was really low budge. And, um, <clears throat> so when we got to come whatever may, you know, because at least with the first record, we also had another monster song with Bother. Of course. So that kind of opened the door for us um, to be able to actually have a budget to make a great record. (laughs) 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 Um, So, you know, with Come Whatever May, we got, we were like the first band, I believe, besides the Foo Fighters, to record at Dave Grohl's studio, which was awesome. And uh, and we had Nick Raskalinix, who at the time really had only done the food fighters producing wise. And obviously now he's done so much stuff over the last 15 years. It's crazy. But, um, so to have him, you know, at the helm and recording that, you know, to walk into the studio every day and you have Dave Grohl sitting in the studio, uh, it was just an exciting time. And, uh, yeah, it, it was, to me, it was, uh, it's still almost, it's one of the pinnacles for me personally, in the band's career so far. 
What what made you uh, go with with Nick? With Nick was that because of the Foo Fighters thing or? Um. Well, we reached out to a couple of people, and obviously the Foo Fighters. Uh, you know that kind of got it started. But if you've met Nick and talked to him, it's it's like we made a record with Jack Black as the producer. That's how I compare. That's the person I compare him to. That's like his personality and. You know, I can't speak highly enough of him, of not only having a great ear and a great producer, but just a fun person. I mean, there was many times where I'd be tracking guitar and he would be rocking out so hard in front of me that it would mess me up. And I'd, I'd be like, dude, you can't do that. Like, I can't concentrate <laughs> with you, like, headbanging and sticking your tongue out like I have, like, Gene Simmons in front of me, like, doing his moves like a foot from my face. I mean, it was just like, he is just so animated and such a positive person it was an amazing experience and that's why we also did audio secrecy with him and uh you know like i said and now you look at his track record of what all he's worked on and it's pretty insane doesn't he have like a lot of vintage stuff when it comes to like amplifiers and things like that that's what i've heard yeah he he collects certain stuff he you know um and, and he of course wanted to use all his vintage stuff and if if you're just to tell everybody out there, Snow Sour, we tuned down and it's kind of pretty low. Well, those vintage instruments do not like to be tuned that low. So I think we spent more time tuning his vintage instruments to record that record than um, than uh, us actually playing it. I mean, it was crazy. But like I said, I think the record sounds great and it was it was awesome. I, I can remember... Um... We we went to an event in uh, in Nashville, and it was at a at a record store. Nick was there. Um, it was for Kyla, Alice Cooper's assistant, and Nick was sitting in the record store, flicking through all the records. He's, he seems to be just a full on music running through his veins kind of guy. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he, he's like I said. I, I can't speak highly enough of him. I mean, I know. Put it this way. I mean, the guys in Rush after they recorded with him the first time said they would never record. He, they told him and they, and they, I believe it's even in, in writing in the press, we will never make another record with that without him for the rest of the band's career. So I think that's, that's, you know, a pretty high compliment from an iconic band. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, you know what? I'm going to stick with the rush, um, the rush flow. There's another rush connection on this record as well. Um, the cover art. Oh yes, Hugh yeah. Syme. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's one of the things I, I'm a big fan of his artwork. Actually, what got me into it not only is the Rush stuff, but for me it was Dream Theater, and that's yep. Yep. um. Then we just started down that that uh, I guess rabbit hole of who the artwork should be done by, and it really came down to uh, to Storm. Um, obviously with the Pink Floyd stuff and then Hugh and, and uh, then it just came down to we just decided to go with Hugh I, we felt that his uh, idea and direction just felt like it was more that more with what the record where it was headed at that time and if you know anything about him it's crazy like at the time I didn't realize like he paints all that stuff like for him to do that or come whatever, it took him like 10 weeks for us because it's all hand painted, which uh, is insane. And wait, he, wait. 
take that stuff for granted now. It's like, okay, cool, you know, digital this, that, and just, you know, but that was another thing that we thought was really cool of him really like taking an idea and then spending all this time, like I said, hand painting is pretty awesome. But how, how does that work? I mean, do you, do you give him like any kind of directions of we're kind of looking for this or do you just give him song titles, the album title, and then he works from that or how did he, how did that go? He actually just went off of the album title. Wow. Yeah, and then he just ran with it. And like I said, I mean, when you're dealing with somebody that's as awesome as he is, I mean, there's only so much direction you're going to give a person. And otherwise, then, why is what is the point of having somebody like them if you're going to tell them exactly right. what you want? I mean, to me, then there's other people we could have got to do that and can't take somebody that's, uh, you know, uh, a massive presence in, in what he does and then not let him do what he does, if that makes any sense. I mean, right, right. Just gave him the song title and let him run with it. So cool. Or I the think album it, title. Not. I think you need Warrant as well. What's that? You did Warrant, one of the Warrant albums. Really? Yeah. Well, it'd, ha it'd have to be probably Cherry Pie, right? I don't know. I don't think it's that one. I think it's, uh, uh, wasn't there one called Dog Eat Dog or something like that? There was indeed, yeah. yeah I think it's yeah. that one. Really? Yeah. Because that does not look like his artwork. No. But I remember you, because I remember talking to someone else. Um, might have been Mike Portnoy, actually, um, about you, Simon. And, and as I Googled him, I, I distinctly remember that Warrant was one of the, he did a Warrant album. Which Crazy. is kind of cool. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go back and see which one now. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like it should be cherry pie when you look at the artwork. Yeah, might have been. I, I can't. I could be I wrong. <laughs> we have to Google. Yeah, if only there was a way. <laughs> <laughs> well, where where is that artwork now? That um that original. Who's got that? He has it, as far as I know. He doesn't come off. I tried to get it a long time ago, and and uh, he he doesn't come off of the originals of anything. And then he was gonna do a uh, a print for me, and you know how that works in this industry. We'll yeah. get back to. <laughs> Maybe I should. Hey, fourteen years ago, you told me this. <laughs> <laughs>
let's let's stick with um with that team. Uh, you also you also had Randy mix the record, right? Um, well, we know why why that happened, right? <laughs> <clears throat> well, that was the question. How involved were you in in picking Randy? Oh, I was jumping up and down to have Randy mix it. So. And then I had the uh, the pleasure of telling him I didn't like one of the mixes on on health consequences. I had to call him up, and he like for fifteen minutes told me I was basically wrong, and it was going to stay like that. <laughs> but uh, and ultimately, now that I listen back to it, for me, it was just one part. I thought that my guitar was too loud in the chorus, but. Uh, he he was definitely right at the time. It just sometimes when you work on something, and especially like for a song like Hell and Consequences, where I actually wrote it and lived with the demo for a year, year and a half before we actually recorded it. Um, you get married to the demo. And I mean, you hear that from other artists and then all of a sudden change isn't good. And even though that change might actually technically make it better, it's just you're you've become so used to what you've heard for so long and that's what happens just so just so the listeners know randy stubb um look he's he's done nickelback he's done allison chains bon jovi but he of course did uh metallica the black record and and dr feelgood didn't he dr feelgood dr feelgood yeah yeah obviously working with um bob rock there yeah um and he also done Metal, like um i think he did the load records he did some kind of monster as well yeah and um s&m i mean pretty much anything that bob rock did metallica pretty much randy was involved either as a mixer or the engineer yeah and then you also had uh ted jensen as well well that's i mean once again it was just having that iconic i mean person i mean so we were we were lucky that Ted decided to do it. We didn't know if that would happen either. So that's what I'm saying. This record for us was just so many things lined up for us. And as even as fans of some of the people that we got to work with, uh, that's why I, I chose this record. It would have been easier to go like um, with either House of Golden Bones Part One, which is, you know, obviously highly up there as far as a fan favorite or even the newest album, Hydrograd. But I just felt like this record. um like I said, it was special on so many different levels. And like, and you're bringing up stuff that I'm, I completely forgot about. I mean, so it's like have Ted Jensen master it, uh, you know, uh, Randy mix it, work with Nick, Dave Grohl studio. I mean, it's just the songs themselves. Just, it was an exciting time. Yeah. yeah. But also me, I mean, I'm, I'm not in the record business, but <clears throat> stuff like that, getting Ted Jensen, uh, Randy Staub and stuff like that. How involved is that just from the band or is that something the record company is involved in in any way or how does that work? We're honestly, we're very lucky. Um, you know, after I read other interviews and have talked to other artists and other bands, um, we pretty much get to do what kind of whatever we want to do. I mean, the first record obviously was, you know, a little bit different because nobody knew what to expect. Um, but like I said, you know, after the success with bother and then to have through glass and, um, I think, uh, roadrunners really let us kind of do whatever we wanted to do. Um, and 
from that standpoint, we're very lucky. They've kind of come in at the very end and listened to what we have. And that's just from a, from a, you know, to obviously think of marketing and radio, what's, what's the big scheme. But as far as everything else, um, let us, I mean, I honor did bring up having, um, Jay Ruskin mix house of golden bones one and two, um, which we ended up going with Jay. And then obviously it worked and Jay ended up producing and mixing, um, Hydrograd, so and the cover EP. So, but other than that, they just they really let us kind of do whatever we want, which is awesome. Let the cool. artist, the artist, good, good, good. good. <laughs> well, let's let's um let's stick with Roadrunner a little bit too. Um, like you, you know, you you saw Kiss when you're five years old. That was that was your first show, um, which will go Dynasty, Dynasty, yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously you grew up a metal guy, you're into Metallica, um, you're even into, like you started playing bass, you're into Billy Sheen, you're into Cliff Burton. So Roadrunner was very much on your radar, I'm guessing. How, how important was it for you to sign to a label like Roadrunner? Um, that's an interesting question because the, the honest to God's truth is, I mean, with, because of Corey and Jim, they had the first right to refusal. So um, they obviously were not going, weren't going to let basically Corey do anything outside the road. <laughs> so, but with that being said, then I get back, back for though, which is the fact that they've really let us kind of do whatever we want and have not given us any resistance whatsoever. And I think that's, Going on almost 20 years, that's pretty amazing to have that type, that belief that, hey, we know we don't need to babysit these guys and we're not, we're just going to let them be themselves. Um, I, I, I can't imagine being with anybody else when I hear other stories of, you know, uh, of the control, you know, at the end of the day, all the suits love to say that that was their idea and their little meetings. So, <laughs> So the fact that we can just do whatever we like, and then they can probably tell you, hey, that was my idea, even though it wasn't, we, you know, who knows what happens in those things. But uh, I felt very fortunate, obviously, you know, that label is built, you know, built itself up being an underground street team, everything up, up honestly, until, you know, Nickelback broke. And then that kind of changed, I'm sure, a little bit of the, the mindset of holy crap, you know, when you have a band that's has that much success so quick, back to back albums I, for in the U.S. for Diamond, which is insane. I mean, that's ten million. So, um, but yeah, I mean, like I said before, they, they've been great for us for the simple fact that they really have always believed in whatever we wanted to do and have helped uh, us achieve it without very minimal resistance to any at all throughout the band's career.
gonna I'm gonna throw this out. Um, you, you went into the studio. You're in the studio from uh, what it says uh, January to April of 2006. Um, mm -hmm. what, what did you bring into the studio? How many songs did you bring into the studio? Oh crap! I don't even know because I don't even know how many songs are on that record. <laughs> <laughs> I will just say this. Nothing was written in the studio. Everything was so all. So whatever that track, I don't know if it's 14 songs and five B-sides. 12, right? 12, 12 songs, 12 songs, 12 songs and uh, five B-sides, I believe. Four B-sides. So all those songs were already written before we uh, we stepped foot in the studio. So it was literally us getting the sounds and um and getting them tracked and like i said probably two of those months were tuning those vintage guitars <laughs> <laughs> but also, i want to i want to know more about that studio and also was that also something that had to do with with nick recording with foo fighters before was that a reason for ending up in dave Grohl's studio and what what is that studio like um, definitely Nick was like, Hey, we need to record here. Like they, he talked to Dave, Dave was cool with it. Um, and so, and I, I mean, every studio has its own vibe, I guess for that, what was cool for us is day one, he basically, Dave Grohl told us anything in the back spare room or back storage room, which is everything Foo Fighters. He's like, you guys can use whatever you want. We don't care. Just whatever. So to have not because at the time, like now it'd be totally different, but as far as gear wise and what I would bring in, I mean, I have more guitars than I mean, I had put it this way. Uh, when I, I just moved last year, I had literally a, a Gibson Firebird, white Firebird that had sat in storage for three years. I had, I literally got to the case. I'm like, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> at that point i was like okay i i probably had too many guitars now uh, but at that time i only had a couple guitars so to have you know for dave and the rest of the band to be that generous to say hey whatever you guys want to use you know along with all nick's stuff to have all of dave's stuff um yeah it was pretty pretty crazy
15. Opening track of the record, which is also the first single of the record, 303150. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, the music, anyway, I had just basically got um, my home studio or just a recording set up at home set up for that. And I don't know, I just started messing around and that was the song I came up with. Um, when I was programming the drums, we touched on Dream Theater a little bit earlier. Um, I had envisioned like, what would Mike Portnoy do on this song? And that's kind of how I approached writing that song. And then what was crazy is because you fast forward to whatever it was, a year, year and a half, and this close, Mike actually almost did play on the record and probably would have had he not been out on tour with Dream Theater. Because we got into like the 11th hour of, and 303-150 wasn't done. Um, obviously, as many know, Joel ended up leaving the band at the beginning of the recording session, and then Roy came in and finished the record. Um, but then Roy had obligations with Soulfly, or actually, was it Soulfly? It, it, Soulfly, or it was yeah. Soulfly that he, I was trying to think, or I was thinking maybe it was actually Sepultura. Um, he had to do it too. And so that song, The Day I Let Go, the drums weren't done. And, um, so I reached out to Mike. Mike couldn't make it. Luckily for us, um, why can't I think of his name all of a sudden? Uh, Shannon? Shannon Larkin. Yes, thank you. Uh, Shannon Larkin happened to be in town, and he just came down and basically blasted through it. And what you hear pretty much is on basically his first take playing the song. It was insane. And then the drums for The Day I Let Go, uh, Jim is actually playing those drums. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Shannon, Shannon, had you had you crossed paths? Shannon obviously was in a band called Amen, just for the listeners, and is now is in Godsmack. But had had you had you passed? Um, had you crossed paths with Shannon at all? Uh, Jim and Corey and Economaki had obviously with Amen because Amen had opened with Slip for Slipknot, I believe during the Iowa cycle at some point. Um, I had not. So that was like my first time meeting him was him coming in and like playing drums to like my baby out of all the songs for the record. Um, but like I said, he came in and he just blasted through and it was just like awesome. So it came out okay. <laughs> <laughs> But there was never, I mean, during this whole time in the studio, there was never talk of getting Dave Grohl to play on anything. Um, no, actually, I don't think so. I, I don't, I can't totally remember. I'm sure it was discussed. I'm sure Dave, actually, I, I believe Nick was like the one that didn't want us to ask for Dave to play on anything. <laughs> But I could be wrong. I could be I could be totally off. So so I'm sorry, Nick, if I just threw you under the bus. <laughs> but um you know, 
and I'm sure it got brought up to having him play, but it was pretty crazy at the time because we would get in the studio. All of us like to get up early and start early. So like we would we would all be in the studio by 10 o'clock in the morning. And that's that's pretty early to get guys in a rock band up, all five of them, you know, and, and moving. So uh, but we'd get in there and Grohl would already be in there. And he'd be like in the control room because Nick would come in and he'd be yelling at us about the cigarette. Because at the time, everyone smoked except for myself. And uh, we would walk in the control room and it was like we were in a bar at two o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was brutal. And uh, yeah, that's because we're all chain smoking, playing keyboard. We got there. <laughs> and then we'd get there and then he'd leave. So, but it was awesome. Love it. So cool. you, you talked about um, 50, uh, 30, 30, being your baby. How, how do you feel about that being the first single? How, how did that just make you feel? Um, I think we already knew that it would be. We kind of followed the same thing that we did with the first album. Um, and this way, we got what we wanted and the label got what they wanted. And the fact of releasing almost two songs, basically in two different formats or two different styles of music. You know, on the first album, it was Get Inside with Bother. Uh, so with Come Whatever May, it was 303150 and Through Glass. So it just felt like the idea of being able to uh, just push push the record more by being able to attack two different styles, I guess, of music was the, the idea. Well, um through glass let's let's jump straight into that that's a massive absolutely massive song written in gothenburg as well uh, the lyrically was written in Gothen- gothenburg i think um do you want to how does that how does that shape your career from that point and did you feel when when you guys were were creating that did you feel that there was something special about that uh to be quite honest i didn't um I knew it was a good song. I really didn't think that it would become what it would become. Um, as far as shaping our career, I think the only thing, I mean, obviously the success off of it is a super positive for the band. The only negative with it was, would come when we would go to make the next record. And I think everybody wanted an album of through glasses. <laughs> um, so that might be the one time that the, that the label kind of, uh, would we would be challenged by them, and it's kind of like, well, we already have through glass, so why are we trying to write another through glass? <laughs> um, which didn't happen, honestly. But um, but you know what I'm saying. Sometimes with the success of stuff, then then all of a sudden expectations and uh, become higher or at the same level. And like you said, that song was a monster song for us. Um, you know, we're, I'm, I'm just thankful that we had a song that was to that, to the level of success. Cause I think not only one, as I said, it, it on the negative side of it, uh, regarding audio secrecy of trying to recreate or create another one of those songs, the positive is it opened up the door. Like I said, with the success of it, to, for the most part to have the freedom, especially nowadays, I mean, it's it's not even a question if we said, hey, this is who we want to use as a producer and this and that. It would it wouldn't even be questioned, I don't think. So mm-hmm. 
funny with 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 artists and and when it comes to fans because like when you're making music if you if you sound too much like the old stuff you get crap for that 
if you stray away too much from the old stuff, you get crap for that. It's kind of like you're damned if you do, do damned if you don't. Yeah, um, well, I 100% agree on that. But as an artist, um, especially if you have any longevity, um, you can't keep making the same record. There's very few bands that can do it. Um, and that work, that formula works for them. I, and it's for whatever reason. And I, I, and that's what you expect from them at this point. So if they strayed from it, it would be truly weird. But um, I'm all about people trying to be, to evolve um, and, and do different stuff. I, I mean, we, we touched on Metallica and, and how big of a fan I am. Um, I don't mind load, reload, insane anger, depending on what song. I mean, certain songs, I mean, I guess you can nitpick at it, but I uh, wasn't afraid to step outside of what was comfortable um, and try stuff that was different. Um, and then ultimately, they ended up going back kind of to what they were to begin with now. <laughs> in yeah. A lot of ways. But I think those records had to happen for that to continue uh, or for them to come basically full circle. So I'm all about bands trying different stuff. And sometimes it can be great. Sometimes it can feel forced or contrived. And then then it's not honest and then it's not good. I mean, but you can't like you said, I mean, some people expect the same record over and over again it's like well you already have that record so i mean it doesn't make any sense to me but how do you look at speaking of metallica how do you look at uh a record like lulu i mean i i must say that i i admire metallica for doing that album even though i'm not really a, i'm not a fan of that album but i think it was a really cool thing to do how do you look at that you look that as something admirable that they did that? Well, I think they must have, I mean, they felt that it was the right thing to do. And I think the main thing is, is with Metallica fans is it's not a Metallica record. They were asked by Lou Reed to come in and be basically his backing band, the record he had written. I'll be honest, I've listened to one song once. I haven't even listened to the entire record. Um <laughs> It's just not my cup of tea. I'm not saying that it's bad or anything like that. It's just that's not what I'm into. Um, but that's how I see that record. It's like I don't look at it as a Metallica record. I look at it as a Lou Reed record that we wanted those guys to play the music to. So, right. One one of the funnier thing was that on James Hetf the Wikipedia page for James Hetfield for a while it said under occupation. It read, I am the table. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Everybody, oh, oh. everybody, when you're around that long, everybody's going to have at least one hiccup in their career. Yeah. And everyone, look, let's don't forget the elder. Everyone's praising the elder now. Yeah. So, uh, uh, I don't know who's doing that, and I'm a huge Kiss fan. I, I just want to <laughs> say right now, I'm not, I'm not bashing Kiss, but... I don't know about that one. I, I want to know who who's coming up and saying the elders top five kiss record. <laughs> well, well, it is it is coming back now. I don't know whether that's yeah. a cool thing to do with all the uh, all the hipsters these days. So 
saying yeah. that. Uh, well, it's that's considered a Kiss record. It's considered a cult classic, but I, I and I, I like it as well. But I can imagine being a. It must have been tough being a Kiss fan back in those days because you had they were at their prime in '78. Then you get Dynasty, Unmasked, The Elder. You know, yeah, that's hard. As far as going back to the hipsters, okay, so we know that they love their vinyl records. I figured it out. It's because that's the only Kiss record that they can find in these these bins <laughs> that are like thirty dollars. <laughs> you could be right. You're probably right. Yeah. Because you know back then that they pressed like millions of these records. And yeah. I have a feeling that that one was a high return. <laughs> <laughs> Most certainly. Yeah. But that's um, all right, because they had to make that record to release Creatures of the Night, which I think is a super underrated Kiss record. Oh, I love that one. Love Absolutely. that one. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. There's that coming around full, you know, full circle. Or sometimes you have to step out of the box to to the really deliver the goods. And they did. I think Creatures, if Creatures, granted, if it had Peter playing drums, it wouldn't be the same record. I think everybody no, no. agree with that. But if it was that original lineup, I think that people would argue that that would be definitely a top five. Oh, sure. Hands down. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, War Machine is so ahead of its time for as heavy as it is. And yeah. Yeah. I love it loud. Just the whole record. Everybody's. It was a rebound, definitely. And then what happened? Then they went to lick it up, took the makeup off, and killed the magic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, pre it's pretty funny that, that Brian Adams is a co-writer on War Machine. Yes, I know. I, yeah. When I heard yeah. that, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> That's a long ways from summer of 69. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, but of course, they got Bob Ezrin back for and did revenge. So he had something to prove and he, he delivered with revenge. So I, I love that record too. Yeah. Great record. Yeah. Great, great record. Shadows, I'm just a word to you, but I am very real. 
So uh, back to uh, back to Stone Sour. Um, do you have any standout songs that really stand out for you? For for that record? Yeah. Um, wow, I don't know. I mean, like I said, we touched base on thirty thirty one fifty through glass. Um, like Hell and Consequences, that's a great opening riff too. That's that's killer. Um, the 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 playing on this is so good all the way through. Yeah, I mean that was one of my favorites. Um, definitely, I guess like for that record, they're all my favorites. Reborn <laughs> um, for me was a standout track. I think. Um, oh, Reborn was. Yeah. I just, it was an idea that I had been kicking around for a long time. And, uh, to, you know, anytime that you've had an idea and you've sat on it forever to see it actually become something, I mean, it was just gratifying. And I mean, it, it's still one of, uh, for the longest time, it was a staple in our live show. And this last cycle was like the first time we stopped playing it for, for a while. Um, just because, you know, we wanted to change up the set, but, there's just there's an energy, especially when we perform that song live. I think out of all of them from that record, it, it's it's a toss up between that and Scars, which actually goes over the best, especially when the band is when we're truly on point and everybody's hitting on all cylinders. It's both of those songs are, uh, I think, better live than what what the record might actually be. I don't know how else to put this. It's taken me so long to do this I'm falling asleep and I can't see straight My muscles feel like a melee My body is curled in a U-shape I put on my best but I'm still afraid Propped up by lies and promises Saving my place as life forgets Maybe it's time I saw the world I'm only here for a while but patience is not my style and I'm so tired that I gotta go what am I supposed to add now what am I supposed to do did you really think I wouldn't see this through Tell me I should stick around for you Tell me I could have it all I'm still too tired to care and I gotta go
I want to know about the last song of the record. Of the record. Zizix. Road. Yeah. So it's a road out. It's in. A, it's a road in between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. If you make a drive. Oh, is it so. an actual road? Yeah. I think wow. to, I, 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 I could be wrong, but I think there was actually a weird cult that used to be off many years ago. I don't know. But I guess Corey just liked the name of it, and it just stuck out to him, so that's why he ended up using it. Cool. It's, it's, again, that's another great song. Um, right. And it's a radio song, too. And so radio DJs, would have they would have been like, oh, fuck. What's the name of this, you know? Right. Uh, but that, that's something with um, Stone Sour. It has some interesting titles, and it always has, and it continues to this day to have uh, interesting song titles. Yeah, I, I can't take any credit for that. I have, I have to give Corey all the credit for that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, that's what he does, you know, he I mean, I look at House of Golden Bones, and I'm like, "What the hell is that? What?" <laughs> Man, I was reading, I was reading some old boar book, and that's how they described the scene. Was it was I came into into the room, and it felt like the House of Golden Bones, and that's how he got the title with some crazy old book or or Hydrograd walking through the airport. It just like I said, I, he certain things just stick in his mind, and then he just makes notes of them, and then. They become uh, song titles or album titles. Man, if, if I had five bucks for every time a radio guy or a journalist asked me, "Hey, how do you how do you say that track? You know that song? You know, or <laughs> yeah, type A personality yeah, is another I'm sure one. Could... Everyone's like, how, how do you? What's the name of that record? That song? Yeah. I only know it because I I listened to him do the press junket for two weeks, <laughs> eight hours. Today, <laughs> <laughs> tell everybody what the title was. Love it. Yeah. Um, let's let's dig a little bit into you too. Um, you started playing bass originally, right? When when you have told us this before, but when did you switch it over to guitar and why? Um, probably nineteen ninety two. I think is when I would have switched. And I just got to the point with bass that I felt um, I'm a very uh, recluse person. So I like I just found it easier to write songs on on guitar than what it was on bass. And and because like you touched on all the players that I loved growing up, I and I used to practice like mad. And I mean, Billy Sheehan's to try to play any of his stuff is like no joke. I mean, you have to be committed. <laughs> and, um, but trying to play his stuff really made my hands strong. So then when I played, started playing guitar, it, it was all of a sudden it felt so much easier and became like a better guitar player than all the guitar players that I knew. So that's kind of why one of the main reasons why I wanted or I did make the switch along with shred guitar, which nowadays, I mean, I haven't, I don't very do very much of that, but, you know, growing up with, In, you know, Ingvar and Paul Gilbert, that type of playing, I, I really wanted to do, to be able to play like that. 
So I think it's a mixture of like slowly becoming better than all the guitar players slash kind of wanting to pursue trying to play guitar that style at the time. Um, I still mess around on bass. Actually, the stuff I'm working on right now, I, I never thought in a million years I would play an upright, and I did three weeks ago. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. An electric hyphen is upright. Did you buy it or did you borrow it? I ended up borrowing it. Unfortunately, with obviously with the the climate of the world right now, I have one coming to me, but until Ibanez opens up all their factories again, I don't know when that's going to be. But a friend of mine that owns a music store here ended up getting one in. And I was like, he's like, I don't know why I got it. Nobody's going to buy this thing. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. But I was like, so can I borrow it? And he's like, sure. So I was like, I'll, I'll find a place for it. And yeah, I did on one of the songs I was working on. I was like, I'm going to try it. I cheated, though. I had to put like painter's tape. I had to sit down with the tuner. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I got to figure out where all these spots are. I'm going to spend here, you know, a week trying to track bass on this thing. So, yeah, I, I cheated. I put like painter's tape for all the fret markers. But it was awesome. I had a blast playing it. Can you tell us anything about the project you're working on? Not really, except for <laughs> as of right now, I have. 12 songs musically done so i i have no idea of right now i'm looking at vocalists different nice. different vocalists nice and it definitely is different than what i think most people would expect like so i've really this time around and since i'm doing this project and i mean obviously you guys know because Corey's already made it already stated that he wanted to do a solo record i decided if I was going to do anything that I wanted it not to sound like Stone Sour, because it's going to, <laughs> I mean, to some degree. So I, a lot of it, half of these songs are, I started playing, I shouldn't say I started playing piano. I know how to edit MIDI piano. <laughs> so I'm a great piano player now. Um, but a lot of them are piano based. And, uh, and I'm running with it like that. And I've really also have started incorporating all these different instruments. Um, and just all kinds of crazy percussion and stuff. And it's because I wanted it to, uh, well, for one, I just wanted to have fun and be creative and not try to write the next 30, 30, 150 or have that pressure of trying to do that. Um, so I'm just kind of running with it. And that's where I'm at. Uh, you know, hopefully I'll have more news by the end of the year. So, but I'm off to a great start, I feel like. And, so does the management and the label. Everybody's really liking the music, but you're all, you know, till we actually put a voice on it. I mean, I'm looking at people right now. They're kind of basically they're auditioning and then uh, we'll go from there. Nice. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Um, let's let's just quickly drop back into the record. Um, you released the record, um, especially ahead. You had those uh, those couple of singles, thirty thirty one fifty, followed by Looking Glass. Um, can you remember when you guys hit the road and how different that was from from the first record? Um, I don't remember us hitting the road as such. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. It was like a, a blur because I think that cycle is like 16 months straight. Hmm. It's the longest tour cycle that the band's done. Um, I just, as I said, when you have, when you're riding the success of a song that has that much impact or a record for, you know, some, some artists or bands, I mean, it's just a, it's a, it gives you a positive vibe throughout the entire cycle. I mean, I think on that record, like I said, it was such a massive jump uh, on so many levels from the first record, whether it's the packaging, the songs, the production, just every everything about the band took two steps, you know, uh, forward. And uh, we just felt unstoppable at that point when we went out and played. And uh, it, that it was a very magical time, not only making the record, but honestly touring it. Um, we, band and crew, were basically inseparable for that entire year and a half. Like, we did everything together, not just the shows. And that, as you guys know, being around the industry is, that doesn't, those moments are in themselves are a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but you you toured uh you toured japan then right was that your first time in japan or had you been there with the first album no that would have been the first time to that we went to japan and actually now that you say that i remember that the album in the u.s that's the week that it came out and we had to drive because i think we were on family values with corn Deftones and Flyleaf. Um, and because we wanted to play Summer Sonic, because we didn't get to do it on the first record, we had to make the sacrifice for like four days, five days. It was brutal. We went from like Texas to LA, played the Tonight Show, which just to give you a head, those out there that don't know, like that was like a two day drive on the bus. Um, in the middle of summer, the air went out, so it was insane. So two days, no air conditioning on the bus into LA, played the tonight show with, uh, Jay Leno was hosting at that time to turn right back around, like four hours later, get on a plane, fly to Japan, play summer Sonic, the lead, not even be able to stay for summer Sonic. We literally, we showed up, we played our set to go back to the airport, get on a plane, fly back to LA to play the show, to pick up on uh family values wow yeah, it was a brutal five days but it was it was crazy like i said at that time you know in the u.s come whatever made debuted at four i think so it, it was a huge thing for us hmm. cool cool um nick anything else mate no i think we've uh covered most of it I think we've we've covered it, uh, unless Josh, unless you're hiding anything that you haven't told us. <laughs> oh, I can't. I think we covered everybody, Absolutely. and everything with that album. Yeah. 
Um, great talking to you, as always. You're over here not so long ago, but um, hopefully we'll get you over here soon. Um, i got a shitload of vinyls for you, mate. So, oh, I can't wait. I'm sure Christine <laughs> is stoked. <laughs> <laughs> um, excellent, everyone. Um, go and check out this record and, and dig into all of uh, Stone Sour's catalogue. It's, it's, it's amazing. And um, Nick, we'll talk to you uh, next episode, mate. Yeah, absolutely. And Josh, thanks for your time, mate. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, man. I'm looking at you through the glass. Don't know how much time has passed. Oh, God, it feels like forever. But no one ever tells you that forever feels like home. Sitting all alone inside your head. Cause I'm looking at you through the glass. Don't know how much time has passed. All I know is that it feels like forever. But no one ever tells you that forever feels like home Sitting all alone inside your head How do you feel? That is the question But I forget you don't expect an easy answer When something like a soul becomes initialized And folded up like paper dolls and little notes You can't expect a bit of folks And while you're outside looking in Describing what you see Remember what you're staring at is me Cause I'm looking at you through the glass Don't know how much time has passed All I know is that it feels like forever No one ever tells you that forever feels like home Sitting all alone inside your head How much is real? So much to question An epidemic of the mannequins Contaminating everything we thought came from the heart But never did right from the start Just listen to the noises Before you tell yourself It's just a different scene Remember, it's just different from what you've seen I'm looking at you through the glass Don't know how much time has passed And all I know is that it feels like forever And no one ever tells you that forever feels like home Sitting all alone inside your head Cause I'm looking at you through the glass Don't know how much time has passed And all I know is that it feels like forever no one ever tells you that forever feels like home Sitting all alone inside your head And it's the stars, the stars shine through you And it's the stars, the stars Time is past. Oh God, it feels like forever. But no one ever tells you that forever feels like home. Sitting all alone inside your head. Cause I'm looking at you through the glass. Don't know how much time.
time has passed All I know is that it feels 